volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost Box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos Timpy's Chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias. Whether you're buying a new car, a used car, or refinancing your current car, FedChoice Federal Credit Union could help save you money. FedChoice makes buying a car so easy that you can do everything right from your smartphone or on a computer. Become a member today and you can take advantage of their great rates and financing options. Find out more at FedChoice.org. That's FedChoice.org. Membership open to federal employees including contractors and their families. FedChoice Federal Credit Union insured by NCUA. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., this is On the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you this morning, and we thank you for joining us. Congressman David Trone joins On the Hill this time. He is a Democratic congressman from the state of Maryland, representing the 6th Congressional District. And, uh, Congressman, we are pleased to have you on the Hill this morning. Yep, fantastic. Great to be here. So a lot of people um, in the area probably know you best from your company. Uh, before you became a congressman, you were a businessman who started what, what really is, you know, one of the most well-known uh, wine businesses in our area, uh, Total Wine. How did, you, how did you wind up in the wine business? Uh, long story, uh, I grew up on a chicken and a hog farm. Mm -hmm. uh, I was born in Chevrolet, Maryland, but the farm was near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the farm didn't work out. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad made a few decisions that were, uh, didn't pan out well, mm -hmm. uh, and we ended up going bankrupt. Uh, they took our farm, took our house. Uh, at that point, I went back uh, to graduate school. How old were you when this happened? I was 28. Uh, still 28 pretty, still pretty young. Yeah, when yeah. I started over, and I began brokering eggs. And I uh, did that for probably a year, year and a half, and selling eggs from one part of the country to the other. And then the chickens, in which I had mm -hmm. been broking the eggs from, uh, caught the avian flu. And all were eradicated. Mm -hmm. uh, so that business went out again. But I think those two failures um, created challenges. It created a lot of empathy and also a lot of work ethic. And so we saw an opportunity uh, in the beer business, the mm -hmm. Pennsylvania beer and soft drinks. Mm -hmm. And that's I built my first store when I was at the Wharton School of Business in my second semester. There was a small store on a uh, wing and a prayer. A lot of built the cooler ourselves by out of two by fours mm -hmm. and plywood and built the check stands and painted the sign on the wall and um, started off one good idea, sell things cheap. <laughs> and we've always been a discounter, so Total Wine's always a low price uh, customer. So, I mean, you have these two, you know, seemingly, you know, big failures early on. I'm always curious in that because that's the moment where people find themselves. Yeah. When you're, your back's up against the wall and you, there's a feeling of hopelessness that comes over on you. So did, did you go through through that part of it as well, too? Was, was Were there moments of despair there where you're just like, this is over and I got to find something else? And then that propels you to the next thing? No, not really. I'm, I'm a yeah. very positive, uh, upbeat individual. Uh, the glass is, you know, overflowing the way I look at so it. So you're ready to move on to the next thing. Yeah, you, you move on. Um, 
you look back and think about what you could learn, what you could take away from that, mm -hmm. and how it's going to help you in the next challenge. Uh, but but after that, it's just looking out the front front mirror, mm -hmm. and uh, keep moving. Could you have gotten to where you were though without that? No, absolutely not. You know, those learning experiences uh, help set you up to pay a lot more attention to a P&L and uh, be innovative mm -hmm. and be willing to change with the times and you know, it help create, you know, Total Wines now in 25 states mm -hmm. uh, around the country and we're the largest retailer of wine and spirits in the U.S. that's privately owned. So you build this company, it's very successful, and you know, you probably get to the, I think, pinnacle that a lot of small businesses would see themselves as being. And then politics, is that something that knocks on your door because politicians start coming to you asking you for money? We had Don Byer in here mm. not too long ago. And sure. he, he kind of told us about his entry point into all of this as well. And that was really where he said he first started interacting you know, with the world of politics was through working on other people's campaigns and, and helping them you know, raise money and things like that. Was that, is that your story as well? No, I've always followed politics from uh, high school through college, through graduate school, right mm -hmm. on. Uh, the only way we're going to really move things, you know, in a really big way is through the political process. What was the moment for you? Was it Watergate? Was it the Vietnam War? What initially sparked that interest? Well, certainly Watergate in the, in the early seventies, uh, mm -hmm. spending that summer watching the Watergate hearings, uh, with Dean and the whole Butterfield and the tapes and everything coming out. Dean was back up on the hill a couple of days ago. Yeah, it was just pretty yeah. a surreal, uh, surreal summer uh, with the hearings. But I think just knowing that that's where change can happen and also realizing that America is just one part of a, this whole world and we have a, an obligation to be leaders mm -hmm. and we can't just pull back and put our head in the sand. We've got to reach out and step up and help out. A lot of people sometimes when they look at business figures who get into politics i think some lay people probably scratch their heads sometimes and say why would you want to do that it just seems like a, a headache and it's a horrible thing to say about public service because really it should be the ultimate calling for a lot of people yeah. but politics has gotten so divisive and has gotten so negative in some respects uh, I think some maybe sometimes people look at people from the business world and go, why, why would you bring that upon yourself? What, uh, what was it? What was it that you had that drive? Because you you originally ran in another district first in, in a primary, which you were unsuccessful in before you moved to the sixth district. What was it? The chance to make a difference? Was it that you were frustrated about what you saw there originally, or, or what? Uh, everybody you talk to in the business world, they're like aghast. I mean, why in the world would you ever <laughs> when you got this? fantastic business you've created 7,000 jobs uh, why would why would you ever do this and put yourself up for all the BS that is in politics yeah. and the craziness of it but the key is the only way we're gonna really be able to move the needle is through the political process so in our company yeah, we can create a lot of jobs and offer a lot of value and then that enables us to do a lot of philanthropy so through our foundation we may be able to help mm -hmm. folks and you know, criminal justice system, education, mm -hmm. you know, all through addiction, things like that that are important. But that's tens of millions of dollars that you can use to help folks, but really move the needle in a big way. Mm -hmm. That takes the government to move that needle. Uh, so when I saw the opportunity uh, to run, we stepped up and uh, put ourselves out there. Uh, it's mm -hmm. a whole new business. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't really rise and fall on merit, mm -hmm. which is unfortunately it should. 
uh, but it's a real chance to help on the issues of folks that are powerless, folks that don't have a voice. And that's where I'm really focused, which is different than most of the folks in politics. You know, we take no PAC money, we take no lobbyist money. You know, we want to be there for folks that don't have a voice in the American system and really need the help. So you come in in this in this uh, 2018 uh, midterm wave for the Democrats, um, retaking the House of Representatives. Speaker Pelosi returns the, to the uh, to the Speaker's chair. What's the relationship? Because from the outside, it looks like the Republicans and the Democrats are at each other's throats of the House most times. Is it like that in the day-to-day workings of the place? Do you have relationships with with Republicans up there as well? Well, first of all, we are blessed to have a fantastic uh, Speaker of the House. Uh, there's nobody smarter, uh, nobody more strategic, and nobody outworks Speaker Pelosi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a fantastic, her leadership. But on top of that is it's so key to build a bipartisan network. And as a business person, the only way we're going to get stuff done is working together. So I'm very bipartisan on the issues I'm focused. Attacking the opioid epidemic in America is, I think, the most important thing we can do. 72,000 people died last year of opioids. I lost a nephew. You know, he was 24. He died of fentanyl. And everywhere we go, somebody knows somebody up close that's also died in this epidemic. Over 400,000 people. Oh, I have as well. Um, You're working on this. And... You know, the local governments have been kind of sounding the warning bell about this for years. Uh, And it has steadily now moved up the chain to the county level, the state level, and now the federal government level. The federal government can't get in the police cars and it can't get in the ambulances. So when you look at this, what's the best use of Congress's ability here? Well, the best use is always working together. And that's why uh, the talk about your previous Uh, question was getting out and working with Republicans. We put together a freshman working group where I've got on my team 63 freshmen and women, uh, both parties, completely bipartisan, from 31 states, and our mission's all the same. How we're going to save tens of thousands of lives, and we can save and will save tens of thousands of lives, but the federal government has, just as you said, has got to partner with state, got to partner with local, because the solutions, the answers or different in every locality. You know, you mentioned a family member. I have a family member. Are, are old, were old attitudes about drug use and about addiction mm-hmm. and unfortunately drug overdoses? Yeah. Did, did that alter or slow down the response here? That what I find different about fentanyl is is that this was a. <laughs> This was something that was originally supposed to do good for yeah. people. It was supposed to be pain relief. But because it was abused and because it was overprescribed, it seeped into the bloodstream of this country in ways that it was never fully intended. And nobody took their foot off the gas before it was too late and the car hit the tree. Um, did, did that slow down maybe the response to this? Because people do kind of have this tendency sometimes to, well, if you abuse drugs... You're, yeah. you're, you're likely to, 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 to be subject of something like this. Yeah, I think it absolutely did. You're definitely right. Uh, when someone's sick, they get cancer, yeah. you go to the hospital, and they help you out. Someone also is sick. It's a disease. Addiction is a disease. Mm-hmm. It's very genetic. And we need to treat this as a disease that it is 
And unfortunately, mm-hmm. we've turned this into an incarceration issue mm-hmm. where we're 25% of the world's population that's incarcerated is right here in America, mm-hmm. and yet we're 4.3% of the population. Mm-hmm. We can't lock our way up out of this problem. We've got to spend the dollars. Uh, we just passed a bill last week for $1.5 billion of state opioid response grants because we've got to give the money to the states, get it to municipalities, so it can be tailored to each area's unique problems. You mentioned uh, you mentioned cancer a moment ago, and you've, you've faced this in your, in your own life. How are you feeling right now, by the way? I feel great. You, uh, you know, thank you very much for asking. We've had clean checkups and... Yeah. Uh, you know, went through radiation, uh, chemotherapy last summer, you know, right during the middle of the campaign. Yeah. Uh, then we had an operation, and um, so far, so good. Uh, Johns Hopkins has done an awesome job. and uh, But so many other folks are cancer survivors, and it just adds the empathy that we feel to help those that, as again, don't have a voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've spoken to Governor Larry Hogan about this, and he's faced, uh, you know, cancer himself. Uh, and he had kind of said that, it did alter his his view of this issue and and uh, not only internally for himself but also the community of cancer survivors that are out there uh, right now joe biden has talked about the cancer moonshot and you've been a voice for expanding research right. medical research as well too are we where we need to be and are we devoting the kinds of dollars that we need uh, yeah. to do the kind of research to maybe address not only cancer, but a whole host of other diseases that we could p- theoretically go a long t- way towards a cure. Yeah, I think you've got your finger on a, a real crucial issue, and that's America, and especially Congress, is so focused on the short term today, just passing this year's budget. We need to change our perspective and think long term about the next and the next generation. And medical research, scientific research for climate change, more focus on education. These are the areas that are all about the tomorrows that our kids and their kids need to experience. And if we don't spend those dollars up front, we're not going to create those tomorrows. But medical research, this year we have a record $41 billion to NIH. But you know what? We've proposed doubling NIH's budget, and we could do that. The money that was wasted on the Trump tax cut those dollars should have gone to the NIH and other research facilities to drive medical research for cancer. Alzheimer's costs America $270 billion a year. And my dad, your dad, both mm-hmm. died of Alzheimer's. It's I mean, we, we know this cost. It's unbelievable. And, it's, and the other part of that is, is not only the people that are physically dealing with the effects of something like dementia or Alzheimer's themselves, yeah. it's the drain that it puts on the family members. Uh, who are, wind up as a sandwich generation where they may be taking care of their own kids and then taking care of their parents as well. Uh, it's an insurance issue as well, too. Catastrophic long-term uh, health care insurance for uh, for rest homes or nursing homes or, or daycare or things like that. It, it costs are astronomical. No, that's exactly what it is. And, again, we've got to get Congress thinking long-term, and that's investing money that's going to save so many lives and create better quality of life for generations to come. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of that there. But if we keep talking about it in a bipartisan way, we can work together across the aisle because Alzheimer's is indiscriminate. Opioid addiction, it's indiscriminate. I mean, we've got to spend the time and the effort 
And that's what forming a team is all about. So you take those lessons from business of teamwork and working with people together to get good stuff done. I want to talk about your district. Uh, on the television program, we were, uh, we were chatting a bit about the size of the 6th Congressional District. It pretty much, for people who maybe not be uh, totally oriented on Maryland's Congressional District, it's pretty much the panhandle of of uh, Western Maryland. Um, it you know touches on West Virginia. It touches on Pennsylvania. Obviously, it shares a, a river border with uh, Virginia. It's it's a big, big district. You said it's four hours end to end. It's four hours end to end from River Road to the end of Garrett County. It's the ninth largest district uh, geographically end to end in the country. So it's a big district and. I spend a lot of car time. I mean, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta put in the hours. Yeah. And uh, we've really focused on a lot on Western Maryland also, because the problems out there with the opioid epidemic has really hammered all of Appalachia, you know, West Virginia, Western Maryland, Lower Pennsylvania. So that's an area that we've really spent time. We've opened three offices out there, and you know, our predecessor had one. We put in three because you gotta be there to help people. There was a time in this country where rural voters were Democrats. Yeah. Um, and it's not all that long ago. The kind of guy who would pop up as a character in a, in a Springsteen song, as I will often refer to them as a Springsteen voter. That changed over time to that voter becoming Republican. In dealing with your constituents now, do you hear any thing that Democrats may need to hear from you about what those voters are not hearing from your party right now to win them back? Yeah, I think those voters uh, really feel left behind. They feel marginalized. Uh, we just had an agriculture roundtable about two weeks ago. Uh, Governor Hogan sent up the Secretary of Agriculture mm -hmm. and we were out on a farm and we talked about issues and listened and listened and learned. I mean, I spent, you know, 15, 17 years on a farm. Uh, I can talk about chickens and eggs and baling hay and picking corn all day long. And uh, this is a, these are really entrepreneurs. These are the salt of the earth. You know, folks that get up every day and really work hard. There's no job, no job I've ever seen is harder than working on a farm. And they just feel left behind. Uh, and I think they have been left behind when there's been problems like opioids. Federal government hasn't stepped like, like we should have. It's, it is amazing, too, because when I'm up on the hill, when the farm bill comes up, as it will, you know, again at some point, um, there's no bigger issue. Yeah. Because when you're talking about farms, you're talking about food. When you're talking about food, it's about how this nation feeds itself. Uh, I, you know, my family's spending uh, their summer on my in-law's farm in Ohio this, yeah. this summer. Um Many of the farmers seem frustrated by Washington because economic policies that get set at this highfalutin level really wind up affecting this. And I'm thinking about right now with tariffs uh, that are being put on things like soybeans to, to China. Farmers aren't happy about that right now. But is there a disconnect between what goes on here in Washington as opposed to not paying attention what its effect is going to be? There's definitely a disconnect. I mean, farmers are just awesome uh, Americans, awesome entrepreneurs, and all they're asking for. They really are the best people. I, mean, I, I could just sit and talk to a farmer for hours, and every sentence will be something that I never knew before. Yeah, it was just a great, great way of life that I just hated to leave. It was so mm. 
awesome. But they remind me of the fishermen that I grew up with. <laughs> they, they really do. And all yeah. they're asking for, though, is a level playing field. If, if they can get a level playing field, American farmers can compete with anybody. Tariffs are just a, simply a bad idea. We should never be involved in a shooting war on tariffs. Uh, let's eliminate that and let the farmers compete, and they will. You also in that district represent some areas down in Montgomery County that are a lot more suburban, though. Are there parallels? Are there similarities between your constituents, say, down county than in the you know more rural parts? Well, there's a big ag reserve down county. So, I mean, there's a, a lot of focus and appreciation for our environment. And so you get that connectivity uh, that, you know, we've only got one place to live. And if we don't think long term, mm-hmm. we're not going to protect the ag reserve. We've got to protect our family farms. Mm-hmm. So we certainly got that all, you know, a lot of continuity in that area. In this freshman class right now, you have had some members um, who have been quite outspoken. But there are others of you, um, I'm thinking of maybe Mickey Shrell up in New Jersey, um, a Democrat, um, a military veteran, um, who does not get the kind of attention that maybe, you know, uh, Congresswoman you know, uh, Anacostia-Cortez gets or Congresswoman uh, Omar gets in your freshman caucus is how does how do people react to that that you know, there was a time here in Washington especially when I when I started here 18 years ago where freshmen were kind of you know seen and not heard for a while that's not the case anymore with your class you're all heard and you're all heard a lot is that because of you came in on this wave of the midterm and you're there to kind of take the reins for this next generation? I think there's uh, sometimes a misrepresentation in the media with what the freshman class is about. Mm-hmm. And it's not shouldn't be about the shiny new thing. And absolutely, there's mm-hmm. half a dozen folks uh, that are really live on Twitter mm-hmm. and bring up some really important, provocative mm-hmm. issues. And that's great. Mm-hmm. But there's also another 70 or 80 folks that are right in the middle, like Mikey Sherrill, yeah. New Jersey. She's fantastic. I mean, Susan Wilde out of Pennsylvania. Uh, folks like Joanna Hayes, School Teacher of the Year out of Connecticut. I mean, the vast majority of the freshman class in the Democratic Party is very much purple, right in the yeah. middle, focused on getting things done mm-hmm. like education. And see, the reason I ask that is because when I look at freshman classes, I'll think back to maybe 10 years ago, and I look at those Tea Party Republicans that came in 10 mm-hmm. years ago. And when you rewind the clock and you look at those Tea Party Republicans, what they brought with their class grew into now what we see with the Republican Party. It grew into a movement that elected Donald Trump to the White House. It grew into a more conservative, right-wing Republican Party than have we ever seen before. So in the inverse, could that be what we're seeing now in your caucus right now, well, a, a new direction? Are we getting a preview of where the Democratic Party is going? Well, I certainly hope not, because if we do, we're not going to win the White House back. I mean, we need to be where the American people are. The American people are all about getting stuff done. They're about working together. They're about being bipartisan. They're about finding a way in the mm-hmm. middle. And that's where we've got to land. If we allow this marginalization where a few people 
have hijacked the Republican Party and the hard right. And we can never let a few people hijack the Democratic Party and the far left because we'll never fulfill our mission for the American people. So we've got to fix the gerrymandering issue, which we talked about earlier, because that's what's given this uh, small group of folks inordinate power because those folks don't have an election. The far left and the far right are not being held accountable because their districts are so gerrymandered, they're automatically reelected. And the rest of the folks, the vast majority of folks, are working in the middle, listening to everybody, learning from everybody, and mm -hmm. saying, how do we work together as a Team America? Mm -hmm. Team America to get stuff accomplished for the American people. How do you like the job so far? I, I you love, like it? I love the yeah. job because it's an opportunity to really move the needle and again, help those that just don't have a voice mm -hmm. from the criminal justice system to folks that have mental health challenges and right on to the opioid addiction. Do you get a satisfaction out of this work that maybe you didn't get from your business work? Yes, absolutely, because you can see the fact that you're gonna make a difference. You know, one person working through 50, 60, then soon 200 to 300 will make a difference and we'll be able to get to these things through the Senate and through the White House, because these are things people can agree on. And mm -hmm. we should be focused where we can agree and where we can work together. Well, we thank you for coming in. We appreciate it. It was good yeah. sitting down and talking to you finally. Yeah. You're looking well. We're, good, we're, good, we're, we're glad to have you here. And uh, we, we uh, hope to have you back at some point in the yeah. future. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it very much. Appreciate it. Congressman David Trone is a uh, representative for the uh, state of Maryland in the 6th Congressional District. And he was kind enough to join us this time on the Hill. We're going to do it for this time. You've been listening to On the Hill. Our guest has been Congressman David Trone from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. En The Home Depot, puedes encontrar soluciones de almacenamiento que se adapten a tus necesidades, como estantes industriales Husky, con una capacidad de carga de hasta 2,500 libras por estante. Así que, sí, puedes soportar el peso de tus pesas, herramientas, cajas con todos tus recuerdos y más porque el sistema de almacenamiento adecuado debe ajustarse a lo que tú necesitas. Ahorra más con hasta 25% menos en almacenaje seleccionado por Internet. The Home Depot. Haces más. Logras más.